Baseball Podcast, Analytics and Stats, with Ben and Meg, from Fangraphs, Effectively Wild, Effectively Wild, Effectively Wild. Hello and welcome to episode 2052 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Relly of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. So I have, I don't know if I would call this a, a peeve or a mm. slight objection or reservation, mm. but you know how infield throws are all the rage these days, the stat cast measurements of how hard infielders are throwing. I think- yes. This may have come up on one of the episodes when I was away. Just yeah. the, the difficulty of win. Yeah, right. The difficulty of distinguishing between two yeah. velocities when you have an infield throw. Sometimes you'll see a throw and it's like, well, that was hard, but was it that much harder than that other throw? I don't know. It's kind of tough to tell. Yeah. But also, we're hearing a ton about this these days because Ellie de la Cruz seems to top himself every week, right? And yeah. my Objection reservation, though, is that some of these record-setting throws that he's making as an infielder are from the outfield. Mm. They're, re- they're relay throws, right? And yeah. that is part of why they are thrown so hard. Now, to be clear, he throws very hard on regular infield throws also. So it's not like a product of the play entirely, but I think it is partly a product of the play because his two fastest on record are both relay throws. So he had a 99.8 mile per hour tracked throw. This was back in July. And then just this week, he had a 99.7. And those were both relays where he was way out in the outfield And he was uh, catching and throwing and really laying out. Like on the first one in July, he may have actually fallen down after Mm. the throw during the follow-through. On this most recent one, he didn't fall down, but he definitely put his whole body into the heave and and sort of stumbled after it a bit. And to me, that's a different category than just your regular infield assist when you're on the grass, in his case, I guess, or... It was in this most recent game because they were in Arizona and, and Corbin Carroll was the – I mean, it was a yeah. pretty pretty play, right? And yeah. because Corbin Carroll was running and he needed every mile per hour of that, it, it was important that he throw it that hard. But when it's in the outfield, A, you're getting your whole body behind it so it's more like an outfield throw. Sure. And B, I also can't really – tell the difference visually between a 99 and a 97 and a 95 it it sort of looks the same to me when i saw it i was like oh yeah that that looked hard but if you had told me it was a 97 and not a 99 i would not have known the difference right right yeah i'm i'm in favor of of the infield throws obviously he is an infielder regardless of where he is standing when he makes the throw but part of why we divide infielders and outfielders partly it's just that infielders 
don't tend to have as strong arms, at least at some positions, because they don't have to make as long throws as outfielders do. Right. And, and partly it's just that the opportunities that they get don't allow them to put their whole body into the throw the way an outfielder does, right? So, right. so when it's like a, a hybrid, it's like an in-between, it's a relay throw, that I think is meaningfully different in terms of like how much oomph you can put into it as opposed to if you're just throwing a grounder and trying to get it over sure. to first before the guy beats it out. Yeah, I I think I accept your trutherism. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, you know, my take on Ellie is that he doesn't actually throw it that hard, you know? Yeah, it's no, like, I'm not uh, going that far. He throws yeah, hard. <laughs> he throws really hard. I think it's an important distinction to be made. Not not that it makes like a a really zippy throw from the outfield like inherently less cool. Like some of no. those are really cool. Yeah. But there is context to those throws that you've highlighted that is important to note when it exists. I, you know, I, I'll, uh, I'll allow the correction in the record, <laughs> but I also challenge you to find even one person who's going to let you make him sound less cool than he <laughs> already does. Uh, I yeah. think you will meet resistance in that project, mm -hmm. which isn't really your project. No, It's just that he's so cool, you know, people mm -hmm. like him because uh, he's so cool. Yeah. When people say, I'm not trying to take anything away from... They immediately try to take things away. Yes, right. They yeah. they definitely are taking something away. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> and and right away, you know, it's it's on the immediate other side of that butt. Right, yeah. yeah. It's not arguably not taking it away. It's just not giving them credit that they don't deserve, I guess. No. That doesn't sound better, Ben. You know, <laughs> no, like that sounds... That sounds like it's you're making it more personal somehow, <laughs> yeah. you know? Like like when Mason Wynn made his throw, uh, he made a 99.9-mile-per-hour throw. That was this spring, right? And, yeah. And then there was a, a previous one that was, was that in game. the Futures yeah. game, right? And, and yeah. that one was like 100 miles per hour, right? Yeah, that one was really like, whoa, yeah. Yeah, but those were actual infield throws, right? They were right. just like fielding and throwing. And in his case, it, it looked almost casual when he like that was a routine play to shortstop basically in in the futures game he just you know he had time to set himself and take yeah. a couple steps but yes. but it was largely a, a regular infield throw and then the one he had in spring training this spring this march it was like he dove and then and got up quickly and had to get it over to first as quickly as but it was like on the lip maybe just on the border between the outfield and the infield but but it was like a regular infield play and so right. the fact that he got to triple digits or just about on those plays I think is more impressive than if those had been relay throws like these Ellie relay throws were not as hard as those Mason Win ones and they were relay throws Ellie does at least for now also have the fastest tracked throw by an infielder that was not a relay, 97.9, mm. but that's still a meaningful difference. That's like almost two miles per hour right. between his fastest routine infield play throw and his his fastest relay throw. So I, I think it's different. And again, it's not like incorrect technically he was an infielder wherever he's standing and it makes it more impressive that he's an infielder making that throw even if it's from the outfield but right. because Statcast gives us the precision to right. actually know where the throw was made we could right. make that distinction this one's actually a throw by an infielder made in the infield as opposed to a throw by an infielder that was more like an outfield throw yeah so, 
in my mind, it's a meaningful distinction. Is it a particularly important one? Not necessarily, but it's something I've been thinking of every time I see one of these record settings plays. Well, sure, because you you hate L.A. De La Cruz, like yes. personally, Famously. you know, professionally. I, just, like, I don't see what um, all the fuss is about. Yeah, really. you are yeah. Uh, in opposition every <laughs> moment of your day yeah. from when you wake up until when you go to sleep. Mm-hmm. All you're thinking about is bad, bad. Ellie's bad, bad, bad. Yep. Ellie's bad. Yeah. I take every chance to tear him down that I can get. I just <laughs> and it, t- you know, you need multiple chances because he is so tall. So to tear him down, you know, <laughs> that takes true. a second. Yep. Well, now that I've made that very important point, just a, a couple of follow-ups from last time. So the latter part of this episode will will be one big follow-up from last one time. One big follow-up. <laughs> I've gone deep down the catcher defense rabbit hole. Yeah. Because the last of several stat blasts on our most recent episode was about the downturn in wild pitches and pass balls that we've seen. And we brought up some potential explanations for that. That has sparked a lot of discussion and responses from listeners. And we have a follow-up, and we're talking to a subject matter expert, Tanner Swanson, who's the Yankees catching coach, and he's going to give us some insight. And then I will relate some other statistical insights I have gleaned and some other theories that have come to the fore, and we'll see if we can get to the bottom of that. But a couple briefer follow-ups from last time. So one thing we talked about was Otani 2.0 was, uh, could there be a even more impressive player archetype than two-way Otani? Is there right. something that he could do or that some other player could come along and do that would blow our minds even more than what Otani has accomplished? And one thing that people wrote in about was the potential for a two-way, two-way player. So not the two-way player in the sense that Otani is where he pitches and hits, or even, as we discussed, someone who plays defense regularly too, but someone who does that and also plays multiple professional sports, right? Mm. So go back to the the Neon Dion and the Bo Jackson days and two-sport players, right? If, if Otani right. were suddenly to turn pro in basketball or football or something, someone like that comes along. That would be more impressive. I didn't think of that because I think the question – specified or at least i interpreted it as what could you do to be more impressive in baseball specifically yeah whereas you know if you were also an nfl player an nba player an nhl player that wouldn't make you more impressive as a baseball player it'd make you more impressive as an athlete overall sure but but yes that certainly that would be more impressive if uh, you were able to do what otani's doing and also find the time to be a professional athlete in another sport what if you found the time to do what Otani's doing and also have a successful law practice? Mm. Yeah, would that be that be impressive in another way? <laughs> <laughs> do you get a sense early in episodes like how serious I am going to be on any given day and then you're like, I got to roll with this because Meg's in a mood. <laughs> There was actually a, a piece written recently by Tom Haberstroh about why we don't see the multi-sport star anymore, which is a, a topic that I think we've discussed on this podcast before. But that would appear to be either endangered or outright extinct, right? Just the right. idea that anyone could or, or would do that. And I think we've covered the reasons for it, but it's probably partly just that it's so hard to do and it's gotten, if anything, even harder as the caliber of play improves across sports. But also, a bunch of it has got to be about the money, right? You're you're jeopardizing so much money 
these days if you endanger yourself by playing multiple sports and playing right. sports year round like there's a good argument to be made that not specializing early and playing multiple sports when you're a youth that that can actually benefit you long term but sure. once you get to the highest level then to not have an off season because as soon as one sport ends you go off to another right that's got to be tough physically yeah. And it just it cuts into your practice time and your developmental time. And also teams are very protective and right. opposed to that sort of thing these days. So in the past, they might have let it fly. Although even back in the day, there were objections to that, that players who were really committed to it had to overcome. But nowadays, it would be really tough. Like people talk about Patrick Mahomes and Kyler Murray. And right. yeah, they, they probably could have done it. They might have the talent to do it. But it would just be so difficult to get teams to agree to let you do yeah. that now and also to endanger your earnings in one sport by subjecting yourself to the strain of doing that in multiple sports. It just seems like something we're not going to see again, but I would have said that about two-way players pre-Otani too. Sure. I mean, I guess the the real um, hubris at the, the heart of the question is that we can perfectly anticipate the next really eye-opening thing that will delight us because, you know, we, we didn't really see Otani coming. I mean, yeah. we did once we, once he was, yeah. like, you know, but like the sustained excellence at the big league level, I think surprised a lot of people, particularly once he was really committed to doing both. And yeah, like Kyler, even if you set aside the way that that decision kind of ended up goofing things up for the A's from just a draft perspective, like all you have to do is look at how Murray's NFL career has proceeded and be like, you, you think that, you know, we're being picky about letting these guys go parasailing. We're not going to let them do yeah. this, like that where they're getting just roasted by big defensive ends for 18, 19 games a season. So there's that piece of it. But I just, you know, I where is our CBS procedural for the guy who is a pitcher and also argues in front of the Supreme Court, Ben? Like, I'm <laughs> stuck on this now. Like, give me, yeah. give me we have a hundred different NCISs, an inexplicable amount of naval crime. Like, what is going on in the Navy that there are so many of these? And <laughs> and nothing about the the humble lawyer who, you know, takes the ball every five days. Where is that show? Give me that show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm receptive You're to You're like, pitch. I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> Pay the writers so that Meg will stop talking. She just keeps <laughs> pitching shows. <laughs> There's also, I guess, the possibility of like a sequential two-way sports star. So you're not sure. playing both sports at the same time, but maybe your career in one sport ends and then you make the transition, right? Like a Kyler Murray could do that. Or yeah. if, if Michael Jordan had, had decided to stick with baseball instead of returning to basketball, maybe he could have made that work. Because right. really thing is that it's been so long since anyone even remotely came close to doing what Otani did. You have to go right. back a century to Ruth and Bullet Rogan and maybe some more marginal two-way guys recently sure. who, who dabbled. But to do it at a star level, that's been ages. We haven't seen that within living memory. But we have seen the two-way sports star within living memory. I yeah. mean, Bo and Neon. I mean, this was the 80s, the 90s, Brian Jordan, right? I mean, this was right. this is not ancient history. No. And that makes me think it's more plausible skill-wise and and just in terms of the physical ability to pull it off, but less plausible in terms of getting the permission to do it and then also just 
justifying it to yourself and to your family and to everyone from a, a pay perspective. Right. And obviously we know even more than we used to about the risk of injury in various sports, especially the NFL. So, so yeah. So that makes me think that it, it could be done. It just probably won't be <laughs> for all of those reasons. Yeah. I mean, like we could see a time where, I don't know, uh, to pick a guy who we know does another thing at a very high level in a sport where he could presumably have a sustained career after the fact. Like, what if the first and arguably most meaningful chapter of Mookie Betts' sporting life is baseball and then he, like, is done and becomes a professional bowler? You know, we could see that. We could see... Curling, it seems to be a sport that can be inclusive. Where is the the great baseball into pickleball player, mm-hmm. you know, in our mm-hmm. lifetime, Ben? In our, yeah. you know, people are still, still, I thought it would have, you know, like tapered off by now. But people are still really, um, really enjoying pickleball. They're like really, mm-hmm. you know, they're still really into it. I, you know, I'm, it does I'm seem flummoxed, that way. but yeah. Yes. But so I, I think that that is is a more likely avenue, if only because there are a number of different sports that are, you know, I don't want to diminish them by saying they're less physically demanding, but they seem to be accessible at greater ages in a way that would accommodate a baseball playing career and a lengthy one, and then a transition into something else that might be um, more accessible, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the other follow-up, one of the stat blasts last time was about players who had passed up the opportunity to cycle, who Mm. had had the chance to do it. They had all the hit types except one, and then they decided to stretch it to take an extra base instead of stopping that would have given them the cycle. They kept going. They took the extra base. They passed up the cycle. This was prompted by Gunnar Henderson becoming the most recent player to do that and the first in quite a few years. And so Ryan Nelson helped out with this, our frequent stat blast consultant, and we came up with a list of 17 previous times that that had happened, so a fairly exclusive club. However, there was one player, as listener Michael Mountain pointed out in our Patreon Discord group, who should have been mentioned, who wasn't mentioned, and he wasn't mentioned because he actually did end up cycling in the game. Oh. <laughs> However, he did pass up an earlier opportunity to complete the cycle, oh. and then he completed it later nonetheless. So this was Scott Cooper. So Scott Cooper, former Red Sox player, this was April 12th, 1994. Scott Cooper had himself a day. So okay. he started off with the double. Then he got the home run. Then he got a triple. Then he reached on an error. Then he got a double, right? So he he needed the single at that point, but yeah. he took the double, took the extra base. And at that point, looked like eh, he's probably passed up the opportunity. He decided to take that extra base. But then he got another chance. And in the ninth inning, <laughs> with the Red Sox ahead 22 to 8, this is why... <laughs> <laughs> why he got so many opportunities in this game. Wow. He singled in the ninth to complete the cycle. So this is the best of both worlds, I think. Like this was pure. This was completely unselfish. Like he he passed up his first opportunity to do it. He said no for the good of the team or just to pad my own stat line in a different way. I'm going to get the double here. 
But then the universe smiled upon him and decided to give him another opportunity. And then he got the single that time. So he was able to really, I think, join the Gunnar Henderson club. Yeah. Players who pass up the cycle, but then was rewarded regardless and and got his cycle in the end. So good for him. Scott Cooper yeah. don't want to, to pass him up just because he did eventually complete the cycle. He, he still deserved to be mentioned just as much as any of those other guys. That is a wildly impressive game. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure was. Mm. All right. So we have to talk, I, I think, about the best of times and the worst of times when it comes to National League players here. I, I want to talk a bit about the NL MVP race because okay. uh, it's heating up. It's pretty impressive. but And the discourse <laughs> around it. Blazing. Yeah, discourse around that. But also wanted to talk about the discourse surrounding one Kyle Schwarber. And his stats, because he has quite a freaky stat line right now, right? Where he he has a chance to have the most home runs ever by a sub-replacement level player, according to War, right? Now, yeah. this is... Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I am just now, I, you know, I pulled it up and boy, boy, howdy. Look at you, Kyle. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Now, to be fair, not sub-replacement level according to Fangrass. Fangrass no, yeah. gives him a robust 0.5 war. Yeah. <laughs> He's in positive territory. However, at Baseball Reference... He is still in the red. He is at negative 0.2 on the season, despite the fact that he has 36 home runs on the season. This is like the definition of an all or nothing year for Kyle Schroeder. So so I I saw a tweet the other day. This was by someone who went by Jolly Olive on Twitter. (laughs) I I think I'm going to call it Twitter forever. I I cannot myself to call it. It's it's very much like, you know how we've talked about how when stadium ballpark uh, rebrandings happen and we still continue to call it what we used to call it. Now, in many cases, it's still a different kind of corporate brand that that we call it. But, you know, you still call it Safeco in many cases, right? I mean, some of them are just such word salad sort of like gosh this doesn't feel like it's a ballpark name at all but right. you get it you associate a ballpark with maybe the first name or the name you grew up with or the longest tenured name and then just because someone else decides to pay for the sponsorship you know the team has to change the official name and the broadcast maybe have to call it that name but we don't fans don't no. right so no. we don't we don't have to call twitter x i think we can continue to call it twitter if we want yeah, I mean, I, I think that just in general, we're well served to not indulge in attention-seeking behavior. So <laughs> right. we have that going for us, too. Yeah. So Jolly Olive on Twitter Great said name. there have been 13 players ever to hit 30 home runs in a season with negative war at negative 0.3. This is where he was then. Kyle Schwarber has the chance to become the first player ever with 40 home runs and negative war. This was quote-tweeted by someone with the long handle uh, at Panasonic DX4500, <laughs> okay? And well, that that person said, you know, if a guy is hitting 40-plus home runs with roughly a 780 OPS and War is saying that you'd actually win more games with a replacement player, <sighs> it probably says more about the limitations of War than about People him. People love, love this line. It says more <laughs> about the strat than it does the player. <laughs> right. I mean... So, so that's the conversation that... 
has been sparked. Sure. And when you see this, because look, uh, he is he's making a run at history here. He has 36 home runs right now. So yes. he's he's leading the NL in strikeouts. He has a 187, 332, 452 line. So that's a 784 <laughs> OPS as we as we speak on Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. And, oh boy. And, and it's true, like once you know the OBP and the slug, the batting average tells you something about the shape of the player's production. Oh, sh- yeah, sure does. <laughs> but doesn't necessarily tell you that much about the value yeah. of the player's production. But he is now tied with 1983 Tony Armas for the most homers ever with a sub-replacement level war, according to Baseball Reference. They trail only 2009 Adam Dunn, who hit 38 cool. homers and cool. had himself a negative 0.4 war, right? So this is like Rockin'. the Dave Kingman All-Stars, the, the Dante Bichette All-Stars. There's a, a famous 1999 Dante Bichette season where he was like multiple wins below replacement, even though he, he had 34 homers because that was a combo of bad defense and park adjustments for pre-humidor cores as sure. well. So... Kyle Schwarber, I mean, he's certainly on pace to hit 40-plus homers, yeah. and he could very well end up with a replacement-level war or sub-replacement level. So sure. if he pulls it off, and I got to say I'm rooting for him. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I am more invested in this than Arise hitting 400 all of a sudden. <laughs> so to what degree do you think this calls into question war, and to what degree do you think it just reinforces the fact that Kyle Schwarber is is a a singular player having a a singular season. Oh, well, I mean, look, uh, (laughs) I guess the first question I would ask of, and here I get to sit in a a spot of relative ease and comfort because our version of war has him slightly above (laughs) zero and Mm -hmm. not in the negative. But like, I guess my question, it's always so interesting to to see these arguments because I think that we we should like welcome them most of the time because first of all we shouldn't assume that everything's always going great with advanced stats like uh, I think that it is incumbent upon proponents of advanced stats to make the case you know and and give your theory of the case right like looking at at his season can we justify his war number just based on our understanding of like where value in baseball comes from. So I think that that's useful. And even if the answer to that ends up being, as I suspect it will hear like, yeah, this is right. It affords an opportunity to like have a conversation with someone about what goes into the number. And if they're open to having that, maybe it impacts the way they think about baseball going forward in a way that they find edifying, you know, that possibility exists. Right. So I think it's, it's useful to have that conversation. I guess like the first place I would start and my on mic reaction to Schwarber's line was <laughs> equal parts about how he is hitting, both in terms of what his average is and the home run total, and then like just how atrociously he rates defensively. And so I would take both of those things, which traditionalists like to talk about batting average, right? And I think that traditionalists like to whack sabermetric folks with the accusation of, well, do you even watch the games? Mm-hmm. And so um, let's engage in a more generous version of that and say, like, have you watched Kyle Schwarber play defense? Because, <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. like, it's really bad. And to Schwarber's credit, like, 
I know that we have joked a lot on this podcast about the Phillies, like, just signing an entire team of DHs and being like, mm-hmm. I don't know, we'll figure it out later. Like, the plan was for Kyle Schwerber to DH a lot yes. of the time, right? Yes. And injuries have forced him into the field for much of the season. I know that he has gotten a little more DH time as Harper has come back and been healthy and been able to play first base. And so they've not had to put him in the DH spot, although he's been DHing again. So, like, who knows how long that lasts. But, like, Schwarber drew a bad assignment that mm-hmm. he is not well equipped for, and he's making a go at it anyway. And like the nobility of that is not captured in war, but like how bad he looks out there is definitely captured in war. And sometimes, you know, in much the same way that you might see what is rated as a particularly zippy throw, and you're like, was it fast? Was it slow? Who could say how old it is? Like sometimes you watch a guy play defense and you look at what the advanced metrics think of that defense and even knowing all of the caveats around sample size and stabilization and all of that you'll be like that doesn't really comport with my my vibe based assessment of him right mm-hmm. or t- my visual assessment of him yeah but then you watch Kyle Schwarber play defense and you're like that seems right you know yeah. so mm-hmm. that seems right like <laughs> it's pretty bad out there and God bless him for trying but like this mm-hmm. pretty bad out there so there's there's that piece of it and then like he's hitting what a seven. And yeah, like he he is being buoyed. He is being buoyed by those home runs. They are yanking him up in in the same way that he is yanking him out, right? Mm-hmm. But like my guy is hitting what he's seven. So mm-hmm. and right. you know, that's not great. It's no. a batting average isn't a perfect stat. It doesn't tell us all the stuff. But it tells us some stuff. And like that's not good stuff it's telling us. It's telling us not the best stuff right now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. And and I feel like batting average has gotten a, a bad rap because uh, yeah. Tango and others have pointed out that, yes, it, it tells you almost nothing from a value perspective as long as you know OBP and slug. But I feel like that's partly because batting average is already a big part of OBP right. and slug, right? Yes. And so it's uh, a bigger component of, of those things, or at least as big than other stats are. So I feel like if you're just taking OBP and slug and saying, well, you don't need to know batting average, I mean, yeah, but batting average also right. is a huge component of OBP and slug. That right. said, yes, he has a 332 on base percentage, which is, you know, fine. It's, it's, uh, fine. it's above average, but it's not yeah. great. And he has a 452 slug, which is fine, okay, pretty good, but not great, right? Because yeah. the batting average drags those things down. So even though yeah. he walks a lot and even though he hits a lot of home runs, it's not a great overall offensive line. He's no. got a 111 WRC plus, right? Yeah. So when you put that on a scale that also accounts for for his other shortcomings as a player. This is why we want war or why we need war so that we can make calculations like this and say, oh, this guy's hit 36 dingers, but also he strikes out a lot, but also he walks a lot, but also he doesn't give you any value on the bases, and also he's bad at defense. Like, without some sort of statistical war-style framework, how do you balance those things in your mind? Probably not very well, right? right? So so maybe he would have been overrated in the past because people would have fixated on the diggers or underrated because people would have fixated on the batting average. Yeah. So the frameworks that we have now enables us to put these things on the same scale and say, okay, this is a plus and this is a minus and here's how it all works out. So yeah. seeing that he has 
36 homers and could be on pace for 40 plus and could still be sub replacement level. Yeah, on the surface, that's like, huh, wow, <laughs> that's never happened before. Yeah. But then you dig into the individual components, and I can't say it shakes my faith in war no. or the framework of war. No. Because, yeah, if this were a player who had no history of being bad at defense or if the eye test said sure. that he was actually okay out there, that would be one thing. We know that offensive stats tend to be a, a bit more dependable than defensive stats, especially in single season or sub-single season samples. So it would be, I think, appropriate to say, oh, that should be regressed more or something, or we have more confidence in the things that he does well than the things right. he doesn't do well. So let's pump the brakes a little bit. Totally. But but it's Kyle Schwarber. It's Kyle Schwarber. <laughs> so we, know, we, we know what we've this all is. Seen, yeah, yeah, we've all seen it. And he has a history of that. And, and the various fielding systems agree on their evaluation. Yep. Sometimes they disagree, but Not he's, in this case. No, negative 18 DRS, negative 16 outs above average. Last year, they were identical negative 14s, right? He has a, yeah. a history of this. So yeah. you could certainly say... This is on the Phillies that that they're forcing him to do a totally. job he's not equipped to do. It's not his fault that he's being forced to play out of position, which is at a position, period, right? right. So you could say that it's more of a, a team fault than a player fault. But sure. we, we count for these things by assessing what actually happened on the field and apportioning that to the player. And so I, I think it is uh, fair to say that he has been somewhere around replacement level at yeah. least given what we know. I agree, you mm -hmm. know, and I think if you if you want to mentally credit him for standing in there when he's forced to, okay, I think that that's fine. That's context for for his performance that is useful for us to know. We you know, we don't want to remove that context in terms of how we you know, at the end of the year when you're sitting around with your buddies, like, talking about these Phillies and their vibes, like, if you want to say, it didn't go great, but, boy, he really tried and did a thing that the team needed him to, and it sure is a bummer that he couldn't just DH every day. Like, I think that's defensible. That's a totally fine way to think for yourself about, like, your understanding of his season. But in terms of us putting a number on his actual production and value, like, we have to account for the fact that he is just really rough out there. Like, mm -hmm. there's there's no way around that. I don't think that it says anything all that, like, revelatory about war as a stat I do think that it shows that we maybe still have work to do as a community to like help people understand what what we're accounting for. And I think that like if you as a Phillies fan or someone who covers the team want to like kind of separate out his defense and just say, look, we're going to acknowledge that this is bad and it is a, a situation born of necessity. So just like bracket that off and don't think about it and then like sit there and and try to make sense of him as a hitter. That's fine. Mm -hmm. You can do that too. Like you can sit there and say like, look, he doesn't hit for average. He walks a fair amount. He still strikes out a fair amount. Like he's running close to a 30% strikeout rate, but yep. he hits a bunch of dingers and you add all that together. And the thing that comes out of the oven is a 111 WRC plus hitter. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, no one's. I also find these conversations so strange because it's like, who are you 
fighting with. <laughs> like, <laughs> is there someone on Twitter being like, I can't believe you like Kyle Schwarber? It's like everybody, people like Kyle Schwarber. Yeah, seems like, Kyle a, Schwarber. <laughs> like a likable guy, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it's also just, it, it's particularly funny to me within the context of this Phillies team, which is like, and I say this, I want to be clear, with just like a tremendous amount of affection. <laughs> like, they are a collection of... Right now, good players who are hurt or until recently were dramatically underperforming and like vibes guys. And mm-hmm. what it has amounted to in the second half is them being in the first and a wild card spot. Like, yep. it's okay. You know, like you could focus on Schwarber having the season he's having, or you could instead think about the fact that, as Jay Jaffe wrote for Fangrass today, that Bryce Harper's sitting for power again, or that Trey Turner, who had to put up a billboard thanking the city of Philadelphia for giving him a standing (laughs) ovation, is, like, back to himself, seemingly. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they're weird. They are a weird roster, and that weird roster went all the way to the World Series last year. So, like, focus on that. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. And wanted to talk about the players at the top of leaderboards in the National League, too, because suddenly an extremely exciting NL MVP race, which it it seemed like Ronald Acuna Jr. had sewn up for most of the season because he had the war lead and also maybe just the fun lead (laughs) because of his power speed combo, which I think he still probably holds, right? So he's he's now about to become a 30-60 player, which is not something that existed before. Yeah. So he got his his 61st steal and hit his 29th homer. So he has the most steals ever by anyone with that many homers. Or wait, I guess it's the the other way around. Maybe both. He definitely has the most homers by anyone with that many steals. It's a lot. It's such a strange combination of stats. Like. I I jokingly predicted maybe he can have a 50-50 season at the start of this year. He has let us down, I guess, in the power department. I, I thought he would hit more homers than this, but he has exceeded my expectations yeah. in the speed and stolen base department. So he's right up there. Yep. But on the Fangraphs war leaderboard, at least, he oh. has now been exceeded mm-hmm. by Freddie Freeman and by Mookie yes. Betts who yes. is at the top and behind only Shohei Otani and yeah. be wide. And if you look at this at baseball reference, they also have Betts second overall in baseball, first in the NL with Acuna a bit behind him. And then they have Freeman a little lower after Hassan Kim and also Corey Seager in the AL. Anyway, it now appears to be a three-player race for NL MVP with two of those players being teammates and all three of them having extraordinarily fun and impressive seasons in different ways. So... I'm not invested in any one particular player winning, and I think, obviously, you you still have more than a month left to go in the season, and that may very well decide who wins this thing. So these conversations are almost always premature when you have them months before the end of the season. But as of now, there's no wrong choice here. It would be Mm -mm. pretty tough to actually choose one over the other and make a convincing case that he'd been meaningfully better than the others. They've just done it in different ways. How do you imagine for a moment that you had an MVP vote and you're trying to make sense of the cases for these three guys? What are your thoughts about Acuna's very impressive stolen base total and the way that it is interacting with the rule changes? Like how are you Mm. applying a mental discount to that number? What are your thoughts? Because this has emerged as like one of the points of argument betwixt and between them because you're Mm -hmm. right, like 
when you think about the raw stolen base totals and home run totals, I feel like we can be confident that he will hit, you know, a couple more before the season mm-hmm. is done, right? Mm-hmm. Those are big numbers. Those are cool milestones and thresholds to pass. And I think some folks who are perhaps a little miffed that like Betts and Freeman, but particularly Betts isn't getting like the consideration that they maybe think he deserves in part because people haven't updated their Acuna priors or maybe more accurately their bets priors, right? Are like, well, but the rules are such that like stolen bases are just way up across baseball anyway. So all of that to say, what do you, how do you think about those? I think it's definitely appropriate to apply a discount. I don't think that he would have 61 stolen bases if the rules had not changed. However, he has a large lead on everyone else, right? right. He is leading Esther Ruiz by 10 stolen bases now league-wide, MLB-wide, and he's leading Corbin Carroll by 21 steals in the National yeah. League. So he is uh, head and shoulders or foot and ankle ahead of, of everyone else, right? So, And it's not that he is the fastest guy in baseball he's he's speedy i think maybe sprint speed underrates him if anything but he's not the fastest guy he's just right. he's been very aggressive he has gone all the time he's picked his spots well and he has taken advantage of the rules changes more than anyone else so yeah i would apply some discount but still give him some credit it's not like everyone is stealing 60 right so right The thing is, I I do think it is more fun than it is valuable. Mm. If you look at his, for instance, his his Fangraph's base running metric, it's like five and a half runs right now. It's like half a win. I mean, that's why guys don't run as much anymore or weren't before the rules change. It's not that beneficial. It's kind of amazing that someone like him is actually leading both leagues and by a lot because – He's a superstar whether he runs or not because right. he hits so well overall. He's batting three thirty-five. He he's got twenty-nine homers, right? Like right. he doesn't have to run. If anything, it endangers his availability to run so much. If you're Esteri Ruiz, then yeah, you run because that's your game. If right. you're Ronald Acuna, you could easily just say, "Eh, I'm not going to run anymore," and right. that wouldn't affect your your playing time one whit, right? So. He just really likes to run. He just likes to showcase his speed. And even post-knee injury, he's still able to do that, which is a great relief. So, so yeah, I mean, like Freddie Freeman, who surprisingly has more stolen bases than Mookie Betts. Yeah, how about that? He has 17 in 18 attempts, I think. And his base running value is like a run less than Acuna's, right? right. So so it, it just doesn't translate to value the same way, but it does translate to attention and highlights and excitement. Right. So whether you think that should be a part of his case for MVP, I could very well see it not be, but it, it is part of his case for being sort of the, the player of the year, you know, like right, not necessarily right. value, but just who we enjoyed watching most or who was most emblematic of that season or who was most exciting. I think Acuna potentially has an edge there, That that's just, it's not quite factored into war, nor should yeah. it be. Yeah, I think that you always, in much the same way that we want to like take the entire context of, of Schwarber season into account, like you can't, 
completely dismiss the impact that the rule changes have had. I think it's fine to, like, the way that I've been thinking about it in terms of, say, Corbin Carroll's season, for instance, is that, you know, because he's got 40, and so he is being put in conversation with other young rookies who had, like, 40 stolen visas and 20 home, at least 20 home runs and all of this stuff. And it's like, you have to take the the broader context of the league into account and in much the same way that like and i think we've talked about this on the show before you know in 2019 if you were like an established big power guy and you hit a bunch of home runs the size of the asterisk that i applied to that total was smaller just because Mm -hmm. it's like you're you're already planting home runs like 15 rows back like we've we know that you can do that and that that is a part of your tool set, right? And so are you getting some that you maybe wouldn't have hit before because the ball is juiced? Yeah, probably because everybody's getting some of that. But like the percentage of your total home runs that we can account for based on the ball is probably smaller than it is for, you know, a guy who's like been a slap hitter his whole career and suddenly has 15 home runs, right? Mm -hmm. If you have superlative speed, are you able to run more often because of the pickoff rules? Sure, maybe. Are you getting a better sort of league-wide stolen base environment, and is that redounding to your benefit? Yeah, but like Corbin Carroll has eighty speed, so you know he was going to probably steal a bunch of home uh, steal a bunch of home runs, Ben. You know, like you do, you steal a bunch of home runs. <laughs> sure. Does he have an inside the park home run? I'm going to look that up while you're talking. I feel like he has to, right? Corbin Carroll. Oh, Ellie De La Cruz robs Corbin Carroll of inside the park home run. This is that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is that throw. This yeah. is that throw, Ben. Yes, that infielder outfield throw. <laughs> He's had them in the minors, it seems, but not uh, maybe as a big leader. Anyway, it's exciting. It's nice to have races that aren't just like done and dusted, whether it's the playoffs or the awards votes, because it seems like we often have less controversy. I don't mean that in like a takey way, but just in a like being able to make compelling good cases for multiple guys. Like that's a nice thing to be able to do. You know, it Mm -hmm. makes the, it makes the season feel away. That's good. So yeah. 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 And I don't want (laughs) to take anything away as they say from Mookie Betts, who is fun in his own way in part because of his multi-position play and the fact that the Dodgers sure. are just like, hey, we need a middle infielder. Uh, Want to play shortstop? <laughs> sure. I would love to play shortstop. That's my dream, actually. And I can hold my own there. I can kind of fake it right. as a shortstop and I can play second and I can be a great defensive outfielder, too, while also being maybe the best hitter in the league overall. Yeah. What with, you know, all these guys are, are batting well over 300. I mean, Acuna or Freeman could end up winning the NL batting title because Arise right. has been slumping. He's only got like a 10, 15 point lead over those guys oh, at this boy. point. So oh, boy. the fact that they're having such extraordinary seasons and Freddie Freeman is uh, about to turn 34 years old and he's having arguably his his best full length season, right? I mean, aside from the 2020 year. So that's really impressive too. So much that he's overshadowing the incredible year that Matt Olson, his replacement in Atlanta, is yeah. having. I mean, he's having a, an incredible power year too, but nowhere near the overall value that Freddie Freeman has provided. These are just some satisfying slash lines, just some, yeah. some nice, just robust 300, 400, 500 nice. type slash lines and just really fun players, likable players, perennial stars and potential future Hall of Famers. Like, this is just a good race. Can't go wrong with any of them. 
Yeah, I can't believe that you were like, he's almost 34. It makes it so much more <laughs> impressive. I'm just sitting here, and I got, like, sideswiped out of nowhere. Ben, she's the <laughs> I least. I sideswiping myself, too. I'm right there with you. But, yeah, yeah I mean, Mookie, Mookie's basically having his 2018 with a lower BABIP, I yeah. guess, more or less. <laughs> it's a, And, you know, fewer steals. It's a, yeah. sort of the same. He's going to be... Right around 60 war by the end of this season. This yeah. is his age 30 season. Mookie's yeah. just ridiculous. <laughs> he's he, so good. He's, in, he's <laughs> incredible. You sit there and you're like, who would trade that guy? Yeah, right. Well, the Red Sox fans were recently reminded of that when he returned to Fenway and put on a bit of a show, as he does. They were sure nice about that, though. So. Yeah, yeah, they were. And plus, Mookie has the could win an MVP award in both leagues storyline going on here, yeah. which is something I've been rooting for that to happen, too. Yes, so I'm going to be pleased with uh, whoever wins this award, I think. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, for us, it would be hard to go wrong, you know. And maybe it will feel, to your point earlier, maybe it'll feel more settled by the time the playoffs roll around. You know, a lot can happen in a month's worth of play. But for for us, it feels like we just get to, we're getting to watch some really good special seasons and it feels particularly nice to be reminded of that after losing Otani as a pitcher like Mm -hmm. you know I was I was really down Ben I know you were you Mm -hmm. know you were you were being brought low um and and more honestly by that than by the COVID but to to be able to look at these leaderboards and be like you know, baseball is really great. It's yep. nice. It's, yeah. it's a good thing. So You've Mookie doing the Frank Robinson over here and then also just picking up shortstop all of a sudden. And you have Freddie Freeman having just an unbelievable year. Just At getting, an advanced, yes. I mean, barely able <laughs> yeah. to walk age, you know. <laughs> you know yeah. Gravy. Should be de- decrepit by now, but somehow he's kept it together. He's batting 340. He's just getting better with age. And then you have Acuna and the, the special fun sort of season he's having so yeah very fun and uh hopefully no fans will will charge ronald acuna in the outfield anymore we know he's really fun and we all like watching him and i didn't care for that yeah you guys want to get a selfie with him that's nice but but don't do it in the middle of the game and don't like tackle him because that can be very scary for players because you don't know why a fan is charging you in the outfield yeah. So, yeah, that was uh, he he handled it with grace and forgiveness, but we cannot condone the fans charging players in the outfield. Absolutely not. It was and and I I sent you or I asked you if you had seen the video of that because mm-hmm. you know, I was aware that there had been an incident and I had seen Acuña's quotes after the fact, which you're right, like he was very gracious. Yeah. In a way that I would have struggled to be, but I had not seen the footage and then that started to make its way around um, because, you know, the fans in the outfield like filmed this all happening. Don't do that. Like such an obvious thing to say, but you just don't know. You don't know like what intent people have. And to be clear, like even if your intent isn't malicious, you just want a selfie, like still don't do that. Like that's not a good the intent being good is not justification. Like it was, mm-hmm. it was intense. I did not, I did not like it, and I don't. I hope we don't see it again. Yeah, one player I I did want to mention that regression has finally come for Mickey Moniak. 
Sad uh, to say. <laughs> we talked about him two times. We talked about him in mid-June yeah. when he'd been one of the best hitters in baseball, and we were like, well, this can't continue. And then we talked about him in mid-July, and it had continued. At that point, he, he'd still been amazing over the ensuing month. And then I was like, but this really can't continue to continue. And uh, finally, it has not. <laughs> so yeah. he's, he is finally kind of cratered. So uh, since the last time we talked about him, I think this was – July 20th, so since July 20th, and this is even with a 3 for 4 on Monday, he has hit 224, 248, 344. That is a 53 WRC+, which uh, of the 189 players with at least 100 plate appearances over that span, I think that's 8th worst. Ooh. So he has he has been one of the worst hitters and, and sub-replacement yeah. level overall over that time. So it turns out that, yeah, swinging at absolutely everything is perhaps not the best long-term strategy. But, but he made it work for longer than I was expecting. You know, if you're a player, it probably never feels good to hit the way he's been hitting lately. I think, you know, there's there's only really cold comfort to be had. But I will say, if you played for the angels and you wanted to pick a stretch to be god awful like this is the right <laughs> stretch to have picked if what you're hoping to do is like avoid notice right because you know they are they have they have much bigger fish to fry mm-hmm. i don't want to forestall any further follow-ups that mm-hmm. was hard to say but ben can i briefly say mm-hmm. a little something about julio Rodriguez? oh sure can i because i you know Last night, I I sat and I, I watched my Seattle Mariners. You know, the the Mets, they weren't helpful. You know, the Red Sox, they weren't helpful. And so I sat down to watch the Mariners going, you know, the Mariners, if they want to stay in first place in the ALS, they're going to have to do it on their own. They're going to have to lift themselves up. And luckily, they're playing the A's. So, you know, it made it easier to, like, lift yeah. themselves up because they were playing – the Oakland A's. And the A's are famously not very good. But upon the conclusion of that game, or rather I should say after Julio hit another home run, this is uh, that was now the, the third game in a row where he had hit a home run, I tweeted that he is so cool and we should talk about him every day. And I, <laughs> I meant that sentiment so much that I not only tweeted it, I also posted it on Bluesky. Uh-huh. And now I sound Russian when I'm saying it. I no longer sound like a Midwestern dad. Um, yeah. I just sound Russian, I guess. But I, I double posted. Like, that's, that's wow. you know, I really mean it. And so I have to put my money where my mouth is. And I yeah. have to talk about Julio because he's so cool. And mm-hmm. I just want to give a little August stat update. Oh, please. Yeah. It's still sure something, Ben. You know, his line, 429. 447, 724. He has a 232 WRC plus. He has a 501 Woba. <laughs> <laughs> now, does he have a 494 Babbitt? Like, yeah, he does. He does have that. But he also has a, he has 11 stolen bases. He's mm-hmm. He's got seven home runs. He's got 30 yeah. RBI. He's got 45 hits, you know? Um, and, and 17, 17 of his hits are extra base hits. I just, it's been a incandescent, you know, resplendent. Mm-hmm. I'm going to think of another, I'm going to think of another fun word in a minute, but it's sure been nice. You know, it's been great fun. And, yep. uh, I hope that these first place Seattle Mariners, when we recorded last, they were not by themselves in no. in first place. And now, Ben. All alone. They are, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And I found myself rooting for the Mets last night. I was like, go Red Sox. I was constructing theories about like Trevor Gott and what what are his motivations? You know, do you want to do well for yourself? Do you want to, you know, inadvertently or or at least um, tangentially, secondarily spite your former team that traded you so they could get salary relief for Chris Flexen? Like, what are you? What do you want? And then it didn't. He blew it, so it didn't matter. <laughs> and then I am given to understand that while the Red Sox were temporarily ahead in their game, that they got really trounced later on. So, yes. you know, they had to do it themselves, but they did. So here yeah. we are. Ooh. Yeah. I still have the leaderboard open that I was looking at with Moniac, and Moniac was toward the bottom over that uh-huh. period. And at the top is Julio Rodriguez, uh-huh. or wise at least, with Mookie just behind him, and yeah. also Bobby Witt and Freddie Freeman. I'm going to say two things. I'm going to start with what will make it sound like I'm making an outrageous case, and then I'm going to backtrack. You know, that combined war leaderboard. At the very top, you're the love of your life, Otani. Mm -hmm. Betts, Freeman, Acuna, and then Julio. And look, I'm not saying that Julio is the AL MVP. He is not. (laughs) He is not. Mm -hmm. It's still Otani. But we were experiencing Julio's sophomore season as something of a disappointment because for a while it was. And Mm -hmm. then he had a... Two-month heater, and now he is, at least by our understanding of war, the second most valuable player in the American League and the most valuable player non-Otani division. Now, is Corey Seager mere fractions of a win behind him such that they effectively have the same war? Yeah, that is also Mm -hmm. true, and we should acknowledge that. Man, good for Bobby Wood Jr., and for that matter, Mm -hmm. Luis Rivera Jr., like, Mm-hmm. Two teams that have been bad, but two guys who have been good. Anyway, that has been Meg reacts to stats. You know, like here I am reacting <laughs> yeah. to stuff. The nice thing about the NL MVP race is that those three players are all on two great teams. Yes. Right? So we don't so have no to have that part yeah. of it. Yeah. Whereas in the AL, if, say, Otani said, okay, I'm done for the year now, and Julio finished extremely strong and Seager did mm. too, I guess you could have someone say, yeah, Otani still has a little war lead here, but. His team is not going to the playoffs, and these other players play for his division rivals, and at least one of them is going to the playoffs, and that player was a, a big part of that. But the NL race, we are mercifully, blissfully free of uh, that yes. aspect of things. Yeah, and and I will say, and I say this as a proponent of my Seattle Mariners, to anyone out there who has an AL MVP vote, which is importantly not me, I would just say resist that urge. You know, if you come away with a, a good case just on its merits for Julio at the end of the season, okay, fine. But don't make it about the playoff team thing. That That remains bad reasoning to my mind, so. Yeah, Joe Pesnanski actually just proposed that we have an alternative award called the Willie Stargell Award that's like named after when he tied for the MVP in 79, even though war-wise he didn't have such a great year, but he was the heart and soul of the We Are Family Pirates and everything. Like an award for for that type of player who had that kind of Stargell in 79 team spirit fan favorite type season and and Julio could certainly win that sort of award if you said hey look at the Mariners comeback it's incredible and Julio was powering that and no maybe he hasn't been as valuable as Otani on a full season level but he's a a Stargell award winner if I ever saw one so maybe some like a an outlet for that impulse 
for like, oh, you you captured the imagination and the maybe hearts you, and you minds. Helped, yeah, you helped propel your team to success. Like that aspect of things that has fallen out of MVP voting and most award voting in my mind for the better, but maybe there is still some way to recognize that because it is still kind of cool <laughs> that that yeah. happens, even if it's not directly reflected in your war, let's say. But yeah, that's uh, that's a possibility. Also, you mentioned the Red Sox just uh, getting crushed in that game, right? Crushed. The, the, the person who wore, wore it for the Sox in that game was Kyle Bearclaw, who... Yeah. Uh, I used to think was like the the avatar of effective wildness, right? He was just lots of strikeouts, lots of walks. But Kyle Bearclaw in this game, he pitched four and a third in relief in this game that the Astros won 13 to five. He gave up 10 earned runs, 11 hits, five walks, and a strikeout. And this was the the kind of line that you just don't see anymore. I don't know if you ever really see that line anymore where you yeah. just like – leave someone out there to wear one like that. Like Andrew Mearns wrote about this at, at Baseball Prospectus, and he found there's only a small group of players in the years that we have pitch count data who have had a game like that where they've just been left out to throw that many pitches. He threw 94 pitches because he was just like saving the bullpen. And so he found a list of only six games that meet that definition since 1988 when the pitch count data begins 90 plus pitches and 10 earned runs in relief. And it was uh, most recently Bearclaw, Ryan Weber did this in 2021, I guess also for the Red Sox. So this was a, a Cora special. Jordan Yamamoto, I remember that game. He did that yeah. in 2020. And then you have to go back to Frank Castillo, Red Sox, 2002. Bob Forsh, 1989, and Tom McCarthy, 1989. So you just you don't see guys left out there to wear one as much. Maybe just because you tend to pull pitchers more quickly anyway, and, and yeah. you feel for these guys, and maybe you just have so yeah. many arms in the bullpen, you don't need to do it as much. Yeah, but man, he was just he was out there taking one yeah. for the team big time. Yeah, this is like when I play uh, I play in a, a sim league. I don't mm-hmm. do fantasy baseball, but I play in a, a sim league. And sometimes, yeah, you are you just leave a guy out there or you have to put him in and the computer will say, he's tired. Do you still want to throw him? And you're like, yeah, I do right. want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm really sorry, but mm-hmm. I do need to do that here. I think it's good that we don't see it more often because, you know, I don't think that we – we want managers to be like cavalier with a guy's arm just because he's less good, you know, mm-hmm. and th- those things aren't always, you know, sometimes their cavaliers may be too strong, but, and I don't mean to say, suggest that this was necessarily cavalier, but like, I think the instinct to be just careful with arms in general is, is good. We, mm-hmm. we want that because you don't want a guy to, get hurt and miss time because he happens to be the dude who can just, you know, he's the, the pitching staff sin eater for that day. Right. Right. Like you don't, you don't want that, Mm especially, you know, there's an argument to be made that you especially don't want it for those guys because they're likely to make less money over the course of their careers anyway, Mm -hmm. you know? And so losing time to an injury could be, you know, more damaging to them than it would be for like a a good pitcher who happens to just blow out. But I I hope that the combination of concern and then this is the less good part, just like 
so many pitchers is is driving that. But sometimes mm-hmm. you, sometimes a guy's gotta yeah. gotta wear one. You just gotta mm-hmm. wear it. Yeah. You know. Mm. Yeah. Also meant to mention this when I brought up Moniac before and, and you said that that was kind of under the radar because the other angels' woes are, are taking more attention. Alex, Patreon supporter, wrote in to say, not sure if this is a question, a comment, or merely commiseration, but another consequence of the simultaneous injuries to Otani and Trout is re-highlighting what we might have known to be true already, that the best baseball moment of 2023, both when it happened and also now even more so in hindsight, was the end of the WBC, Aww. which I guess is kind of true it's uh it's bittersweet now in retrospect knowing what was coming for trout at least this season yeah. obviously otani's have an amazing season even though right. his arm is hurt now but yeah <laughs> yeah <true>. man <laughs> it just goes show it's like mm-hmm. it's like we talked about last time gotta appreciate yep. it when it's in front of you because you don't know how long it's gonna last all right so let's bring in Tanner Swanson here now to talk about catcher defense. So for anyone who didn't hear our stat blast last time, basically the mystery, the puzzle, the enigma, the conundrum here is that for years, wild pitches and pass balls were becoming more and more common. And there seemed to be obvious reasons for that. The pitchers are throwing harder than ever. They're throwing more breaking balls than ever. They're throwing more pitches outside the strike zone, trying to get chases and strikeouts than ever. So it was getting really tough to block these wild pitches and pass balls. And we were also seeing more walks sometimes, but definitely more hit by pitches, etc. And then all of a sudden in 2022, and even more so this year, that reversed itself. And we went from having one of the highest rates, at least in recent decades for wild pitches and pass balls, to one of the lowest, even though pitchers are still throwing hard and they're still throwing lots of breaking balls, etc. And so we were trying to puzzle out why this was. Did it get easier to block for some reason? Or did catchers just get better at blocking? Or is it a factor that we didn't even mention? Pitch comp? which came in and reduced cross-ups starting in 2022. So maybe it's pitchcom related. So after that episode went up, I exchanged some messages with Tanner Swanson, who is the Yankees' quality control and catching coach. And though the Yankees have had some issues this year, I wouldn't say catcher defense has been one of them. They actually rate very well in catcher defense, despite the absence of Jose Trevino recently. So they're... The highest, according to Fangraph's uh, defense rating after the Pirates, who had Austin Hedges for most of the year, that doesn't take into account blocking. I think they don't do quite as well in blocking if you look at StatCast, but framing-wise and and overall, they're a good defensive team. And Swanson, who was formerly with the Twins and then was working with catchers in college, he's been very much at the forefront of the knee-down catcher stance that has become common And so he has a a lot of thoughts about the effect that that has had on wild pitches and pass balls, which, as you noted, J.J. Cooper has written about multiple times and apparently is writing about again. (laughs) So I think we can hear from Tanner and he can talk to us about what he thinks the effects of catcher technique and instruction improvements have been and also pitch come. And then we can reconvene briefly after that. And I will mention some other hypotheses that have been bandied about and, and some other data that I have. But here is Tanner Swanson, who I should say has uh, been much celebrated for his work with uh, certain individual catchers and uh, how he seems to have helped them improve their framing in particular by advocating this style change. 
All right. Well, Meg and I are catcher defense enthusiasts slash obsessives, but I can guarantee that we have not considered that subject more than the man we are bringing in right now, Tanner Swanson, who is the New York Yankees quality control and catching coach. Tanner, welcome. Hey, Ben. How you doing? Hey, Meg. Happy to join here. This is obviously a topic I'm extremely passionate about and uh, yeah. one that gets kind of a lot of noise. So yeah, I'm happy to contribute here if possible. Yeah, happy to have you. And I'm not surprised that this was on your radar way before it was on ours. So you have heard our discussion from the other day, but is this something that has been talked about in professional catching circles uh, going back to last season? The fact that we seem to have seen this reversal in wild pitch and pass ball rates? Yeah, I think this is one of the more misunderstood you know, aspects in our game currently that seems to be very controversial, which is somewhat disheartening to me. There's public perception. There's obviously the industry is in terms of kind of the catching style and techniques that have been adopted recently. Professional baseball has acknowledged that there's benefits and, and obviously many catchers, if not most, have kind of evolved over the last several years. You know, yet the public narrative hasn't necessarily evolved at the same rate. And there's still a lot of, I think, confusion about what is happening is just solely just to steal strikes or are there other benefits. And I think now based on this conversation that you guys have sparked up, like we're seeing that there's real benefits on, on the blocking side as well. And, and that's turning a lot of heads, I think. And I, I think that the perception is actually, and this is one that we tried to correct in our conversation and that JJ Cooper at Baseball America has tried to remedy in his own analysis that Catching from one knee can actually worsen a catcher's pass ball rate, wild pitch rate. We kind of lumped those two things together in our prior conversation, and the data doesn't really support that. In fact, it doesn't seem to be true at all that guys who catch on one knee are, are more prone to struggling with blocking. So you've obviously helped a lot of guys make that transition to a one-need approach, at least situationally. And so as you're thinking about how you marry the one-knee approach with blocking, what are some of the things that you're encouraging guys to think about so that they can still be nimble and get to to balls that might be prone to skidding away from them in the dirt? Yeah, I think what's happened is we've kind of merged the two positions together or the two skills where I think for a while, especially kind of towards the beginning of kind of the velocity revolution where there was a clear uptick and not just velocity, but movement and stuff. And, you know, maybe even a, a reduction in command in terms of, you know, what we were seeing with zone rate. So I think the blocking environment was getting increasingly difficult annually, right? And I think it reached kind of a tipping point in 2018, 2019, where we started really looking at this problem differently. And the first step to try to summarize quickly was, you know, my initial goal was to try to figure out, you know, how can we better optimize the, the framing piece? And it, it wasn't about blocking at all. It was about, you know, we knew the value of a strike. I think the industry at that point acknowledged how valuable that skill was. But I think up until that point, everybody was just trying to figure out how to acquire it as opposed to try to maybe better train it or optimize it. And, and so when we started kind of digging into the data, this is, you know, when I was a coordinator with the twins, you know, we, we found a huge discrepancy in framing metrics with the introduction of the skill of blocking. So a, a catcher's framing ability with the base is empty compared to their framing ability with a runner on base, like almost universally throughout the league, every catcher got worse. And, and that was kind of the first eye-opening moment for me that, okay, 
what's the common denominator here? And it, it was the stances that catchers w- would get in traditionally. They'd get higher, they'd get wider, you know, which was perceived to be more athletic and, and a better position to block and throw from. Yet a majority of the time when they were in these positions, the block or the throw outcome still rarely showed up. And, and so I thought there was a mismanagement in, in how catchers were using stances and, and kind of set down this path to try to figure out if there was a better way to do it. And, and initially I'd be lying if I didn't say that, you know, once we committed, once we started studying knee down stances and, and saw the receiving benefits and committed to it full time, I, I thought that our blocking would actually get worse. I, that was my initial hypothesis that, but I believe that by sheer frequency, the net gain would overcome, you know, any deficit in blocking kind of similar to what was happening with the shifts. Like you're cl- clearly going to, to take away more hits than you give up, but it's that loss aversion when, when the ball sneaks through a hole where an infielder normally would be positioned, you tend to overvalue the, the loss more than the gains there. And, but over time, obviously, clearly there's a benefit. And, and so I kind of looked at it the same way, but what I quickly learned, like as we started experimenting in the minor leagues with, with these different knee down variations that not only like, were these positions not detrimental, but they were actually could be advantageous. And, and almost every single one of our guys that we put in these positions actually got better at blocking, not worse. So I wasn't a catcher, so it was a little counterintuitive to me that if a catcher was trying to control balls in the dirt better, that they would actually take their center of mass further from the ground, which is how it was being done previously, right? You'd get up in this tall stance and you'd take your center of mass further from the ground and and now with like faster breaking balls like that transition to be able to get to the ground was becoming I think increasingly difficult and so by starting in this position we've now like merged our blocking stance and our receiving stance into one and there's no real transition needed and therefore catchers could they committed to the actual reception much longer and I think the block then just became kind of an extension of the reception it wasn't a completely different skill that was kind of competing against one another. Yeah, and it's really fascinating how quickly this has just swept the sport. I think the fact that catchers are in front of our faces constantly on every pitch, we're looking at them, I I think they almost go unnoticed. You take it for granted. But now it has switch so quickly that it's almost like when you see a traditional crouch, it, it's the outlier now. It's uh, old school all of a sudden, right? And I don't know whether there's been an equivalent mechanical change in any other position. It, it's like if every other pitcher started throwing sidearm all of a sudden, or I don't know, I guess you could say some of the changes in hitting mechanics and launch angle and that sort of thing, but visually that's that's not as obvious as what we're seeing with catchers. And I know it's not unprecedented, People cite Tony Pena, for instance, back in the 80s with his extreme one knee or one leg down style. But I don't know that anything has been as quickly embraced as this. So uh, how would you sort of chart the progression of this across the league? Because it's gone from just a couple guys doing it to when I interviewed Tyler Flowers back in 2018. He talked about how everyone was getting on the knee down bandwagon and now it's just so pervasive, it's almost universal. So how has this spread? It's become incredibly contagious. I think you said it with, I certainly didn't invent the, this knee down style. You know, it was, it's been prevalent in different phases for, for some reason, especially back in, the, like you said, the Tony Pena's and Benito Santiago's. And I mean, there were guys getting in these positions with nobody on base and we didn't have data to, to tell us that, yes, this was good, this was optimal. 
But I think intuitively these guys understood that it could get them into a lower position. It could take their center mass closer to the ground, which is where the strike zone is most susceptible. But for some reason that became, you know, lazy and there, there became a stigma around that specific technique and it was just outlawed or, or not allowed with runners on base. And we held this assumption that you couldn't block and throw from these positions. And, but I don't think anybody had really tested that assumption. And I think the minor leagues is a, is a great testing ground for these types of things. And I, I, I happen to be in an organization where they were really encouraging us to, to try things and to test things and to, you know, before we, we knew with a hundred percent clarity or evidence that, that it was effective. It was, I, I think I was fortunate to be in that environment where it kind of allowed us to experiment. And, and so once we started experimenting with, with the blocking and the throwing, it became pretty clear to me that this had real value beyond just the receiving component. Other things I think come into play here, I think around this time too, like the value of quality receivers is now like universally accepted by, I'd like to think every organization. And, and so you've seen organizations start to value this skill more, not just at the major league level, but, but even below. So if catchers don't possess this skill, I think they're just catching less or maybe not even at all and moving to a new position. So I think the population of catchers has, has changed, right. And and the talent gap has certainly shrunk as everybody's there's an arms race to try to optimize this skill. Uh, And I think with that, you, you know, we have better receivers generally across the board that have greater glove skill, greater pocket skills. And I, and I think that has contributed to the blocking piece as well. Like the skill level, based on how players are being evaluated, scouted, drafted, developed, but also trained. I think the training aspect is completely shifted where like there is a clear emphasis on, on trying to improve a catcher's framing ability. And, and I think that has had carryover effects into the, in the blocking. You're seeing many of the best blockers in our game right now are not blocking balls off their chest. I mean, they're utilizing their hands and their glove really effectively. And I think, again, that was a teaching point that was not really promoted, you know, by coaches. It was, you had to get your body in front of everything. But I do think in combination with getting guys in better positions, getting them grounded in these knee down setups, it's allowed them to actually track pitches more effectively and utilize their hands, which we have more motor control over our hands than any other part of our body. So rather than take that away, like it's now being promoted, I think, somewhat by the positions catchers are in. So I think a few other things have have obviously come into play here and converged, but the blocking environment has never been more difficult and catchers are blocking pitches despite public opinion better than we ever have. And so I think it's an exciting time for, for the position. As you're working with players and trying to get them to sort of buy into that approach, I'm curious if it has been, I don't quite know how to put this, but like at some point we are going to have the strike zone either by virtue of a challenge system or a full automated zone sort of diminish the value to some extent of framing. As you're presenting catchers with this approach, are they excited about there being sort of a new frontier of them being able to establish and retain value for their clubs? Because if receiving doesn't matter quite the same amount as it did, if you're a really great blocker, you're still going to be defensively valuable, even if it's to a lesser degree than framing presents. So is that a part of the conversation when you're talking to guys and trying to get them to buy into this approach? I mean, not necessarily. I think the buy-in is actually really easy, I think currently now it was it was really challenging initially back in 
2017-18, like there wasn't really the automated strike zone wasn't close, right? And and it wasn't really part of the conversation. It was like this is going to increase your value exponentially if you can become a better receiver. You know, this is what the industry either currently values or will be valuing here in the in the very near future. And and so that was kind of the the selling point initially. And I think over time, like when you put guys in these positions, I think they immediately they're like, yeah, like I've wanted, like this feels right. And, and they look across the league and this is what the best guys are doing. So it, it, the, the art of the sell is, is become certainly a lot easier. Now I, I have been asked the question a lot, like, you know, if the full automated strike zone were to be implemented, like will catchers then revert back to what the setups looked like, you know, previously. And, and my gut says no, because of how effective we're actually blocking from these positions. Now that, you know, obviously I could be wrong. And, but my intuition says like, yes, the blocking value gets increases drastically, but if these are our best blocking positions, then I wouldn't anticipate a lot of change. So my initial reservation when we were corresponding about whether an improvement in catcher technique is responsible for this reversal in the wild pitch and pass ball rates was just the timing of it, right? Because we were seeing increasing wild pitches and pass ball rates as velocity kept going up and as pitchers were throwing more breaking balls and fewer strikes, etc. And most of that stuff is still happening, right? And so what I wondered was, well, why did we see this suddenly flip from 21 to 22? Now, we can put aside pitchcom for a second. I'll, I'll ask you about that next. But just pertaining to the technique, I thought, well, if it was related to that, then wouldn't we have seen a, a gradual increase or, or at least plateauing in those rates as more and more guys started to adopt that Nidan style and get used to it? But you had, I thought, a pretty interesting explanation for why you think that that could still be true, even though the early adopters were getting in on this several years ago, why maybe we didn't see the full fruits of that until just these past couple seasons. So can you explain why you think this has really shown up starting last season? Yeah, I think I think you touched on it there. Like, typically, the earliest adopters, when there's some new innovation, there's risk. So the high-end performers generally aren't quick to, you know, there's no need for them to try some radical new technique. And and so I think initially in the major leagues, what we saw was like the guys who needed it the most, the ones who were really struggling, who had to do something different, were much more accepting or willing to try getting in these positions and. And so I think that that's one, one part of it. And the second is like, not only are they, were they willing to try, they were vulnerable enough to try and experiment, you know, largely within a major league season. It's not like they had years of training behind the scenes to kind of refine these techniques. They were trying to kind of largely figure it out, not just players, but also coaches. I think this, this kind of swept the scene so quickly that there were also a lot of instructors or coaches that, this was really challenging their ideology and that they had to try to figure out quickly, which I think has now happened. I think uh, across the league, there are a lot of people teaching this very, very well, maybe probably better than I am. And, and it's evolved a lot since its initial stages with, with different variations. And, and so I think the instruction has really improved. I think people have been figured out how to individualize it to the, to the player's strengths and, and how it can work within within their own kind of strengths, I guess, as a player. And so 
it's evolved beyond just the, the earliest adopters who were maybe less skilled. And, and now your most skilled players are, are largely utilizing these techniques and they've refined this process now over a period of, of several years with off seasons and spring trainings and in some cases, private instruction. And, and so I think overall, this, it's, a, it's a much more refined process than we saw in the early parts of, of 2021 when, when guys were essentially kind of just thrown into the pool and, and trying to figure out how to swim for the first time. So let me ask about the pitchcom factor, because the timing is certainly suggestive. We see this reversal in wild pitch and pass ball rates in 2022. That's the first season of pitchcom in the majors. And now, of course, even pitchers can use pitchcom to call their own pitches. And we've seen this further reduction in wild pitch and pass ball rates. So the timing matches up really well there. But it did seem somewhat unlikely to me that if we've had, say, a 20% or so reduction in wild pitches and pass balls, that that could be explained by a lack of cross-ups alone. I wouldn't have thought that cross-ups would account for that high a percentage of wild pitches and pass balls. But what have you seen with how Pitchcom has improved communication, minimized cross-ups, and what effect do you think that's had on these rates? Yeah, I, I think we'd be lying if we didn't acknowledge that it's it's certainly a, a relevant factor. When we talk about blocks, we generally think about balls that bounce in the dirt, but really anything that gets away from the catcher is is a blockable pitch, right? So we have balls that are errant pitches over our catcher's head that are considered missed blocks if if not you know if they're not handled. You have pitches kind of within the framework of the catcher's body that if aren't handled are, are generally scored as as pass balls, and then you have balls that actually bounce, and so when you actually separate those three different skills, like, you know, dirt ball blocking has actually improved as well, notably. So I don't, I'm not certain that that pitch comp can explain how, you know, pitches that bounce in the dirt, you know, why catchers are more effectively being able to corral those pitches. Now the, the other ones that I think certainly like the, the pass ball rates, you know, pitches that are within the catcher's framework that they should reasonably handle, you know, the reduction in, in, in those certainly, I think, makes sense that you know, better enhanced communication from Pitchcom most certainly has a role um, in, in some capacity. I wanted to ask about one other trend. I don't know whether it's related, but it does seem like we've seen catchers creeping closer to the plate, right? And uh, Tom Tango published some StatCast data on that recently and showed that the closer the catcher is to the plate, the better the framing numbers. Not clear exactly whether that's correlation or causation, but seems like it would be at least partly causation, right? And he found it's something like the, you know, you get an inch closer to the plate, you're one red and better at framing, or, or that's basically the relationship. And so we've seen that catcher's interference calls have skyrocketed, right? They're still very rare in the grand scheme of things, but we saw a record number last year, 74. There have already been 86 so far this season. So I guess two questions about that. One, do you think that's at all related to what we're talking about with the wild pitches and, and pass balls? Does that make it easier or harder to intercept those pitches if you're a little bit closer to the plate? which I guess, you know, could be partly for framing reasons, partly also because you've got so many runners going these days, you might want to get as close as possible just to be closer to the second base bag. And then the other thing is that if catchers are doing that, how do you instruct them not to make contact with the bat, right? Which is bad because that costs you value as well and also potentially endangers you. So so how do you get closer without getting too close? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I, I intentionally uh, was avoiding that topic because he's, <laughs> he's spot on. Yeah, it's out there. It's public. <laughs> it, depth is, is certainly has value. Tom, I read his piece. Like, yeah. He acknowledged the, the framing value there, but there's, there's also blocking value, right? The, the closer you are, the, the balls that bounce, you've reduced the hop, and now it's maybe they're, they're kind of glove blocks as opposed to getting up high into your chest. And, and so I, I definitely think there's a role that the depth has played as catchers have, have slowly kind of crept closer and closer to the hitter. You know, and I think maybe initially the intent was to largely center it around framing, but I, I do think there's, there's certainly blocking value there too. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is giving away anything, but but if you instruct a catcher to be a little bit closer to the plate, is there anything you can do to minimize the risk of being too close of of making contact? Because that's that's bad on multiple levels. I mean, being strategic or tactical about which hitters you're mm. you're targeting for one, but but I think the other component here is, and probably more importantly, is how efficient your actual receiving mechanics are. And if you're working from below the ball, as opposed to on the same plane as a pitch, you know, mm. if, if, if your glove is, is up early and, and on the same plane as an incoming pitch, the bat is also going to arrive on that same plane. And, and so being able to work from below the ball efficiently, you know, so there's, there's certainly, you know, technique that helps mitigate, you know, the increased risk of, of getting closer. Yeah. And then I guess big picture, Meg kind of touched on this earlier, but it looked a few years ago like catcher might really be losing a lot of its value potentially or or at least skill and technique that set it apart from other positions. My MVP machine co-author Travis Sochik wrote a piece for 538 in 2020. He called catcher baseball's most endangered position and you were quoted in that piece. So it looked at the time like gosh, guys aren't running as much, so the throwing game isn't as big a deal. And then you potentially have robot strike zones and ABS coming in and taking away framing value. And then maybe we weren't even aware of PitchCom at the time, but there was some talk about, well, maybe you have some sort of electronic pitch calling system. And then now when pitchers are calling their own pitches, does that take game calling value away? So it's a a really seismic sea change sort of time for the position. And I guess an exciting and also daunting time for a catching instructor and coordinator like you to roll with all these changes. But it does seem like with the surge in the running game, right? And then also increasingly, it seems like we're likelier to get a challenge system than full-blown every pitch ABS. And so framing will still matter. And also challenges will matter, right? There's a whole strategic element to that that catchers will be directly involved in. So even if they've lost a little bit of the game-calling responsibility, I'm encouraged, I think, as a a catcher defense fan, (laughs) that it seems like there's a better outlook maybe for the position remaining important than there was a few years ago. Is that how you're looking at it too? Is this, guess it's good for your job security too. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, I went through a phase where I was like, man, like catchers are getting really good at this skill. Like, and, and now we're, the industry is going to make rule changes to devalue that. But I've, I've kind of shifted my mindset to those kind of things are out of our control and Ultimately, like you, you look at the rule changes that have been implemented recently, and I think, you know, I think most people could take a step back and say, you know, it's it's led to a better product. And so, whatever those changes are, like I think it's my job and our job as instructors to just continue to adapt and evolve and, and figure out where's the next competitive advantage and 
you know, but to your point, like I think the, the increase in running game has, has shifted the dynamics. It's certainly a, an increased presence in terms of takeoff rates, et cetera. And being able to mitigate that is a skill that I think was devalued at one point and is now kind of returned. So, you know, in terms of the challenge system, I, you know, I would support it. I think probably, you know, if we can eliminate the egregious missed calls, um, you know, from a challenge system, I, I think ultimately that's probably better for our game. And, and I think the, the best receivers will continue to have value because, you know, they'll, they'll get all the marginal pitches that likely won't be challenged by hitters because they're too close to, to call in real time. So, you know, I, I think the, that, that would be my preference if, if I got a vote, which nobody's <laughs> asking me for my, for my opinion, but, uh, but that, that seems like a more likely scenario in the near future than a full, full-blown automated, automated zone. We like to hear that our preferred approach to this has support from people who know more about catcher defense than we do. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll, yeah. And are even more invested in it, I suppose. Although I guess yeah. <laughs> it's it's probably been pretty tough to instruct younger catchers not knowing exactly what the position will look like down the road, right? Especially as, you know, Pitchcom was tested first in the minors and, and the new stolen base rules and pickoff rules, step-off rules, et cetera. And then, of course, ABS, it's all tested down there. So you haven't really known it. You worked with minor leaguers and major leaguers. So sometimes it seemed like by the time some minor leaguers get to the majors, the position might be completely different. Right. That's been a topic of conversation that we've, you know, I'm, I'm involved in kind of our programming and, and philosophy and everything we're doing in our, in our minor league. It's led by Aaron Gershenfeld, our minor league coordinator, but we're, we're in lockstep together in terms of what's happening. And, and we've, we've talked about like, where people have asked us, should we prepare for this? Should we be doing things differently? Should we be prioritizing blocking? And the answer is always like, we're trying to do everything well. Like that, that's really, I think the beauty of this system is, is catchers don't have to pick. Like we're, we're going to really sell out to receive at the expense of blocking, or we're going to really sell out to block at the expense of receiving. And I think for a, a long time, that was, that was true. Like the best receivers were generally poor blockers, you know, up until 2018, 19, and the best blockers generally struggled to receive. And they were, I think now that the, based on the positioning, it's allowed these skills to be complementary, and we can be effective at all of them. And that's the end goal. Like we're, we're trying to be good at all these things. So as opposed to having to pick and choose yeah. which one we want to value. So we haven't really changed course at all. And I don't know if that's the, the right plan, but that's kind of where we're at currently. And until the environment does change, you know, we're going to continue to operate within the rules in place. Yeah, it seems like it's working. And I know things have gotten harder for catchers, not that it was ever easy, but, you know, working with more pitchers over the course of a season or in any given game, I guess the load lightened a little bit by pitchcom now potentially, but it's just it's harder to hit stuff today. And obviously it's tougher to catch it too. Just last question you seem like sort of a, an unlikely candidate to have been one of the trailblazers in this area. Cause as you mentioned, you didn't catch in college, you played in college, but weren't a catcher. Right. And then you're part of this trend of, of teams kind of dipping into the college coaching ranks and looking for new ideas and hiring coaches directly from college. Although I guess you were sort of working with catchers prior to going to the twins, but not exactly a, a full-time professional college coach. So what was it? that got you into this? Because I know that uh, Travis has written about you a few times and mentioned you in our book, The MVP Machine, as sort of an example of 
unorthodox ideas coming from people with unorthodox baseball backgrounds. I honestly, like, I'm not embarrassed at all by the fact that I didn't play the position. I, I think it's really actually benefited me because it's allowed me to, to kind of provide a perspective, a different perspective, and, and maybe ask questions that weren't being asked previously. You know, when, when kind of examining, you know, why things were being done a certain way, I didn't carry a, these biases that, well, this is how I used to do it, or this is how, you know, my catching coach told me this was the right way. Like, I didn't have any of that. I had I was really naive to how this should be done. And I think I just looked at it very, not solely objective, but largely driven through kind of the data and, and what it was telling us. And, and I think just questioned a lot of things and was also, like I said, in an environment where that kind of experimentation was demanded, really. And so it was a fun time. I, I really loved player development for, for those reasons that, that you could, whatever you could dream up, at least in my experience, you had the freedom to, to test and to, and to expand on, and, and there were no limitations um, in that regard. So, yeah, I, I think a little bit of luck there, too, I think, where the industry was uh, accepting of, of somebody of that nature who, who didn't maybe carry that, that, the resume that was once required as a player. Which I, which I think will will change. You know, that there was a window of time where where that was needed, maybe, or, or at least valued from the industry. And and now I think just by nature, you know, players are are now coming up in in a in a data driven uh, environment where you know they I will probably be replaced at some point with uh, somebody who did play in the big leagues who <laughs> has all these same maybe skills because that was their experience as a player and. And so I think I was uh, in some ways a byproduct of this gap where there was a shift and new perspectives were welcomed. And it's kind of how I, I look at it. Well, we appreciate you sharing those insights with uh, Mitch Garver and Gary Sanchez and also Ben Lindbergh and <laughs> Mike Howard. So thanks very much. Uh, now, next time someone says, uh, how do these guys think they can block balls down on one knee like that? I'll, I'll have a podcast episode to send them. Yeah. Well, well, good luck. Um, I look forward to reading the comments and the, <laughs> there, there will still be dissenters no matter how strong the evidence is. But yeah. that's, that's human nature, I think. Yes. Well, it is strong evidence. Just look at those wild pitch and pass ball rates. I can't argue with that or you can, but the data probably you should be on your side. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Great talking to you, Tanner. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Meg. Okay. So, Tanner acknowledges that this may very well be partly pitchcom related, and I think it probably is, but I got to think it's about more than that. Yeah. Because, again, it's just hard to imagine that cross-ups could have accounted for all those wild pitches and pass right. balls that we're not seeing suddenly. And it seems like there's been an improvement on just balls in the dirt, just however you slice it. So a few other explanations or, or theories that our listeners have advanced or that I've already seen people advance online, that it it could be just because there aren't as many runners on base, you don't get wild pitches and pass balls if the bases are empty, but it turns out that doesn't seem to hold water because uh, this season, last season, there's been a higher percentage of pitches with runners on base than there were the couple seasons prior to that. So that doesn't seem to account for it. I've seen people suggest, well, there are more stolen bases and, and steal attempts now. And so if you have a wild pitcher pass ball on a steal attempt, that just goes down as a steal, not a wild mm. pitcher pass ball. 
So maybe it's that. But again, this happened last year, really, before these rules changes, before everyone started running. And we're looking at it on a per pitch basis. You can break it down by batter or by game or by pitch. But however you break it down, you see the same sort of trend and effect there. So could it be Pitchcom, the original question asker who prompted this stat blast the other day, Andrew, he looked at this and he found that as I had analyzed by month within 2021, that it seemed like there was uh, some improvement in wild pitches and pass balls as 2021 went on, which I had thought maybe that was related to sticky stuff. Maybe Mm. when they cracked down on the sticky stuff, in fact, pitchers, when there were all the fears about wildness after that, that if anything, the opposite's been the case and that maybe if you don't have the the confidence of the sticky stuff, then you're taking a little movement off or, you know, you don't have it stick to your fingers so much that you throw it wildly or whatever. He looked at that in the minors where they started testing pitch com in 2021 at some levels and he found some slight improvement at that point, but nothing really obvious year to year, 2021 to 2022. However, he did find that the rate of wild pitches and pass balls seems to have improved even more with runners on second specifically lately, which might suggest that it's pitch com related because that's when you would have gotten the most cross-ups because you've got a runner on second, you're changing up your signs and everything. So that's some slight evidence there, but I don't think that can solely explain it. So I went to two other sources here. I went to Tom Tango of MLB who works with StatCast data. And then Tom also pointed me toward two researchers who were in college at the University of Minnesota, Jack Rogers and Kai Frankie. And they actually just presented at Sabre Seminar recently, which I was not able to attend. But I saw their slides. They presented on catcher defense and blocking and wild pitches. And so they used their model that they used for that paper. And and they also work, I think, with the Minnesota baseball team, or Kai does. And they're the president and vice president of the sports analytics club at their school. So Tango and, and Jack and Kai, they all looked at this. And it seems like, as is so often the case, that it's probably a bit of both, <laughs> that it's, yeah. it's multifactorial. So Tango was able to look at this And according to the StatCast model, which takes into account the expected block rates and the difficulty of blocking based on many factors, the location and type of the pitch and the count and the catcher positioning and all of that, that it does seem like the blocking opportunities have gotten easier, that there were fewer expected blocks last year than there were, say, a couple of years Mm. before. And so... He thinks that it's probably something that has made blocking opportunities easier. I talked to Jack and Kai, and their model also seemed to suggest that, but also showed that catchers have improved their performance, that even relative to the expected block totals, even though maybe those have decreased a bit, the catchers have still performed better relative to that. Like they've they've blocked more than expected, even given that. So that would suggest that that Tanner's right, that this is technique and skill and instruction in addition to perhaps easier opportunities. And Jack and Kai also confirmed that the one knee down and, and the hybrid stances 
those do seem to perform better than just the traditional crouch when it comes yeah. to to blocking that based on their video and statistical analysis that totally backs up what JJ has found and what Tanner was asserting there that actually those catchers who have switched they have been better and more of them have switched and gotten more proficient at that so it does make sense that catchers would be better now but I think also it looks like the blocking opportunities have gotten a bit easier. So that then raises another question of why have blocking opportunities gotten easier, right? Because yeah. that's that's puzzling too because velocity is higher than ever. Breaking ball usage is higher than ever. So look, it, it could be that perhaps uh, sweepers are – easier to block than regular sliders and, and there have been more sweepers lately. It could be we speculated last time it might be the ball that there might be just a better grip with the the newer deader ball but also maybe deader ball pitchers are more likely to throw strikes, throw strikes in the throw pitches in the strike zone because they're less wary of those balls getting crushed now that the ball doesn't carry as far. So that could be it. It, it does seem like there's been a higher percentage of pitches thrown in the strike zone this year and last year. Or it could be, and, and Jimmy, our Patreon supporter, wrote in to note that we've previously talked about how some teams' catchers have just decided to set up more over the middle and, and have not said, hey, try to hit the corner here, but just try to throw it over the plate. Trust your yeah. stuff, right? Like the Orioles have had success with that. The Rays have had success with that. So maybe it's pitchers just trying to be a little less fine, just to trust in their stuff and, and throwing strikes and catchers setting up in the middle. And maybe that's part of it too. So maybe the blocking opportunities actually have gotten a bit easier, but also the catchers have gotten better. So <laughs> as usual with these very puzzling questions, it's like, is it this or is it that? Often it's more than one thing happening at once. So that's the best I can come up with. Yeah, probably Pitchcom has played a part. Probably the blocking opportunities have gotten a bit easier. And also probably the catchers have gotten better because of the knee down, because they've moved closer to the plate. They're getting better bounces, whatever it is. So it's all this stuff combining for what was, to me, a pretty surprising result. I'm just envisioning you with like a cork board behind you yeah. and a bunch of red string and printouts. Of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a word document, but <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> it's a it's, metaphorical uh, cork board. You know, yeah. it's um, it's There's full like of, of metaphorical yeah, red string. Of, yeah, definitely <laughs> upstairs. That's what it looks like there. <laughs> Where is the CBS procedural about the pitcher <laughs> slash detective? Ah, uh, he could solve baseball crimes or. Yeah. Baseball mysteries, you know, they don't even have to be crimes. They could just mm -hmm. be it's it's baseball meets unsolved mysteries, you know, mm -hmm. and and the unexplained, which yeah. I am not going to go on a tangent about, but is a fascinating document. Also, <laughs> William Shatner, way older than I thought. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he looks great, but he looks uh, great. Yeah, he's, he's like 93. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I don't know if we've completely cracked the case here, but this is <laughs> as close as I can come. Uh, people can certainly continue to send us more information, but I, I think there's good evidence that there are a few factors that are playing into this to produce a surprising result. And, and I'm always amazed when 
players after the decades and centuries that we've played baseball that they might realize, oh, actually, we should have been doing it like this all along. Yeah. <laughs> we should have been throwing more of this type of pitch, or we should have been throwing this type of pitch higher or lower, or actually, we should have been swinging up more, or actually, we should have been catching with one knee down. And, and often their predecessors and their people who intuitively sense this, whether it's Tony Pena with his catching or Ted Williams with his swing or whatever it is, but often it's not embraced by the league as a whole, even though you would think like players would know this intuitively. They, they're they so good at what they do and they're so experienced and yeah. wouldn't they be able to tell? But sometimes it takes an outsider to come along and say, why not do it this way instead? Maybe that would be better. And sometimes conditions in the sport change such that it makes sense to do something differently that it might not have made sense to do before. But always fascinating to me when something can change, even at this late date in baseball history, that we might realize, oh, no, there's a better, different way to do this. Yep. All right. Well, we can close with the future blast and see what else is uh, different and better or worse in the future. So this future blast comes to us from 2052 and from Rick Wilbur, an award-winning writer, editor, and college professor who has been described as the dean of science fiction baseball. On May 8th, 2052, the largest North American earthquake since 1965's Anchorage quake changed the course of the Mississippi River south of St. Louis and the course of millions of lives affected by the massive quake. It also brought the red-hot start of the season for the Cardinals to a temporary halt. I guess that was a, a lesser effect, <laughs> but still significant from a baseball perspective. It was the bottom of the fifth with the Cardinals on their way to their eighth straight win when InBev Ballpark began to tremble and sway in time with the Gateway Arch visible in the distance as the 9.2 quake on the Richter scale struck the northern extremity of the New Madrid Fault. The tumbler went on for 10 very long minutes as the players stood on the field and those fans who could scrambled onto the field as well. The ballpark's upper deck was an especially terrifying place to be as it bounced up and down and seemed to twist Visible cracks in the superstructure were apparent afterward, and the ballpark was abandoned for the remainder of the season, but the structure did not fall, much to the relief of the terrified 40,000-plus fans in attendance. The Gateway Arch, built in 1965, swayed well past its 18-inch design limits, and portions of the outer steel shell broke off and fell hundreds of feet to the ground. Miraculously, no one was killed by falling debris. Aftershocks were felt for weeks St. Louis and much of the Midwest suffered billions of dollars of damage from the New Madrid quake of 2052, which was magnitudes larger than the famous New Madrid quakes of 1811 and 1812. The death toll was mercifully low at 450, mostly in collapsed housing. The major buildings in St. Louis and nearby communities stood firm. The Cardinals, led by an all-star infield, the top designated runner in the league, two fine pitchers and the hot bat of Ernesto Delgado, moved their home games to Taylor Stadium at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Temporary stands enlarged the stadium's seating to 18,000, and as the recovery from New Madrid went on over the summer, Cardinals fans found their way to Taylor Stadium to remind themselves that life and baseball would continue despite the horrible earthquake. The Cards ultimately lost in the NLCS, but the season was memorable for their managing to play at all. Wow. Yikes. 
All right, I will leave you, as my increasingly froggy voice allows, with a bit of feedback we got from listener and Patreon supporter Now I Only Want to Triumph about the preceding episode's Future Blast, which was about the centennial of Bobby Thompson's shot heard around the world. He writes, A thought on that Future Blast, not only could the shot heard around the world not happen in 2051 because of the clock that limits games to 2 hours and 15 minutes, it couldn't happen in 2023 either. Thompson's home run came in the third game of a best-of-three tiebreaker series, And even the one-game playoff has been excised to the history books under the most recent CBA. Under current rules, since Brooklyn won 13 of 22 against New York that year, the Dodgers win the pennant, the Dodgers win the pennant, the Dodgers win the pennant, the Dodgers win the pennant. And yet, that's not even the most historically notable thing lost by retroactively striking games 163. In 1995, the Angels beat the Mariners 7 out of 12 times, so when they finished tied atop the AL West, California would have won it on the head-to-head. No tiebreakers would have meant that the Angels faced the Yankees in the 95 ALDS, which means that Edgar couldn't have hit a double, which means the Mariners might no longer exist in their current form. Young Meg would have been very sad about that. Young Ben would have been happy. If you're wondering why we didn't discuss the Angels' waiver madness on this episode, well, all of that went down after we finished recording. However, we will be back tomorrow to talk about that. If I'm capable of speaking at that point, I thought I was getting better. And I think we will also have a guest who will allow us to extend Meg's streak of mentioning Julio every day. So stay tuned for waiver talk and more Mariners talk. Also, I've got to let you know anytime anyone else tackles the question about whether there's a conspiracy about errors and official score decisions and batting average and whether official scores are being more lenient and classifying things as hits that once would have been errors in an effort to boost batting average, J.J. Cooper of Baseball America and Tom Tango, both of whom were mentioned earlier, have taken their own looks at that topic and reached the same conclusion that we did in our stat blast and that Russell Carlton did at Baseball Perspective that it doesn't seem like there's anything historically out of line happening this season and that even if the change in the error rate, the minute change in the error rate were a result of an instruction from the league that it wouldn't have actually changed batting average much anyway. So I will link to their analyses on the show page in case you haven't yet been convinced. And if you haven't yet been convinced to support Effectively Wild on Patreon, maybe I can convince you to do that. The following five listeners have already gone to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signed up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Mitch, Peter Clemens, Mahara Bamaria, Will C, and Yo-Yo. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, discounts on ad-free Fangrass memberships and merch, and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site, but anyone and everyone can contact us via email. Send us your questions and comments at podcast at Fangrass.com. You can also join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. I'm going to go on vocal rest now, and assuming that I don't still sound like Harvey Firestein, we will be back to talk to you very soon. If baseball were different, how different would it be? And if this thought haunts your dreams, well, stick around and see what Ben and Meg have to say philosophically and pedantically. It's effectively wild. Effectively wild!